All right, we're going to jump into the sermon. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to the book of Esther, chapter 9. This is the last sermon of the series. We've come to the end of this series through the book of Esther. And we're at Esther, chapter 9, verses 20 to 28. Esther 9, verses 20 to 28. Um, Esther 9, 20 to 28. Let me read verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 23, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Amen. This is the Word of God. All right, uh, so we've come to the last sermon in our sermon series on Esther. Um, Paul actually assigned me um, chapters 8 to 10 to preach from, so we're going through three chapters. I was tempted, Paul, to get you to read all three chapters because you did that. But yeah, I just gave you the, the couple of verses. So uh, Yeah, um, but I will be preaching uh, from 8 to 10, so uh, we'll see how we go uh, with time. Hopefully, we'll end on time. Um, let me begin by telling the story of a guy named Jim Stockdale. Uh, Stockdale was an American soldier. Uh, he fought in the Vietnam War. There he is. Uh, Jim was captured uh, during the Vietnam War, and he actually spent eight years uh, in a POW camp in a place called the Hanoi Hilton. Um, it was a euphemistic name for the most egregious and abominable uh, POW camp that existed during that war. Uh, in that POW camp, he was tortured over 20 times, and uh, yeah, he, every single day, Stockdale wrote um, after the experience that uh, he wondered whether he would get out at all. He struggled with that um, every single day, and of course, we know that uh, the fact that he shared this story means that, he, that there is a happy ending. Uh, he eventually made it out. He survived to tell the tale, and he was reunited with his wife and kids. Um, a journalist uh, wrote a book about him an author rather, wrote a book about him. And in that book, 
the, the author asks um, the question to Jim how he held on for so long, how he dealt with his seemingly hopeless circumstances day to day. And Jim replied and said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. And then the author asked Jim, well, then who didn't make it out? And Jim said, that's easy. It was the optimists who didn't make it out. The ones who said, we'll be out by Christmas. You just need to hold on until Christmas. And then Christmas would come and then go. And then Christmas will come again and then go again and then come again and go again. Eventually, the optimists are the ones who died of broken hearts. They were, in fact, according to Jim, the ones who died first. But hang on, doesn't Stockdale sound like an optimist? To this, he replied, and he said these words, You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Walking with God in a world that does not. That's our tagline for this sermon series. Walking with God in a world that does not. Isn't exactly like being you know, held prisoner in a Vietnamese POW camp during war, but often we still have the same questions that run through our minds as we live out our Christian lives. When things get tough as a result of being a Christian, when things don't go the way that we planned as Christians, and especially in times of particular difficulty, when we wonder to ourselves whether this whole Christian thing is actually going to be worth it in the end, we ask ourselves the same questions that people who were in the POW camp, might have asked themselves, will I make it out? How will I make it out? Chapter 8 to 10 of the book of Esther is actually the end of the book of Esther. I know that it's long. It's three chapters. Uh, But like the end of The Return of the King, which is my favorite movie, um, did you know that The Return of the King's extended cut edition, the ending is 45 minutes long? Anyways, um, these three chapters, like the 45-minute long ending, it gives us a description of how the story of Esther ends. And it's here at the end of the story where we find the most compelling reason to believe why the book of Esther is found in our Bible. Even when God is not mentioned, even when God is not talked to or even talked about. Because it's at the end we discover the end result of God working in the silence, as we have heard multiple times in the past. And honestly, it couldn't be more relevant for you and me. Um, We're living life as God's people, and like Esther and Mordecai and the people of God, in the time of the book of Esther, God doesn't speak to us through his prophets. We don't hear God directly talking to us in the way that maybe many people in the Old Testament would have gone through. But it's also here in the silence that God works in the same way. That the results we see here actually describe the destination of our own story. 
At the end of the day, uh, chapters 8 to 10 show us the great reversal, which is the title, uh, of the story, not only of Esther, but of every hardship the people of God go through. The people of God in this story, they see a great reversal in three ways. The power is given to those who once had no power. Victory is given to those who were once condemned. And celebration replaces the sadness once felt. And in each reversal, we will find that the questions of, will I make it to the end as a Christian? How will I make it out of these circumstances? When walking with God in a world that does not, they will be answered. So let's answer them. We're looking at uh, chapter 8, verse 1 to 2 for our first point. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, in order to get these three points across, I'm going to have to get us to remember back to the beginning of the, uh, of the book. Remember the story of Haman? How it began? Remember how Mordecai was overlooked, even though he saved the king from assassination? Remember that? And how Haman, the Haggagite, which we learned was ethnically an arch enemy of the Jewish people, um, that Haman was given what Mordecai deserved? Remember that? Remember how God's people, as a result of Haman, were seemingly at the complete mercy of this man? All power seemed to be with him. And here is one of the first of the great reversals we see in Esther. If you actually read Esther, you can actually track it in a a V shape. Things start here, and then they descend and descend and descend, and then there's a reversal that happens, an event, I think in chapter 6. And then we're at, the, we're at the end of the book where it mirrors a lot of the stuff that we see in the beginning. So this is one of the first great reversals we see in Esther. The once powerless Mordecai now has power over his enemy. It's actually the power his enemy once held. The signet ring we read here, it's the symbol of the king's power. And in chapters, I believe, 2, uh, two and 3, this was given to, Mordecai, uh, to Haman but it's actually now given to Mordecai. Now let's remember where Mordecai came from. Mordecai saved the king, and he should have been praised, but he wasn't given the recognition that he deserved. He was in fact treated not only unjustly, but totally unfairly at the end, because as a result of Mordecai not bowing down to Haman, what happened? Haman decided to kill all the Jews. This was injustice in the highest form. And I think we can relate to that in some respects as Christians. See, as Christians, when you and I uh, do the right thing, when we follow the commandments of the Lord Jesus, when we give up our time, when we help other people, we give up our our money for the sake of others, we make make sacrifices, sometimes even greater than maybe uh, other people, we often don't get the recognition that we deserve in the life we live now. Sometimes we we get treated unfairly. Worse yet, sometimes as a direct result of living for Jesus, 
the world seems to almost punish us back. And this is the brutal fact of our reality, and will be more of a brutal fact of our reality as Christians. For all of us know, for all of us who know the feeling of injustice as a result of doing the right and godly thing, of walking with God in a world that does not, this ending for Mordecai is a great encouragement to us because see how the story ended for Mordecai. It ended with power. When, when, he, when Mordecai witnessed Haman's exaltation and elevation, I don't think Mordecai could have imagined that he would be where he is at the end of this story. In Esther, we find the answer to the question we sometimes feel as we live our lives as Christians, feeling somewhat powerless in a world where it seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous and godly suffer. To this situation, we can find in the book that we're reading here, a great reversal is also on the way for us. I guess what I'm trying to say is Mordecai's life often reflects our own as Christians. Often we feel powerless. Often we feel weak. Sometimes we feel the unfairness of the world we live in today. We think to ourselves, I've sacrificed so much for God. But in the end, what good has it done for me? What recognition have I received? We think to ourselves, I've tried my best to live for Jesus. But it seems like people who don't live for Jesus, people who don't take their faith seriously, seem to be doing so much better in life. To this, we need to remember how Mordecai's story ends. We read that the king took off his signet ring and gave it to Mordecai. We read that Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. We are reminded that God pulled through in the end. And this is the same God who is pulling us all to the end right now. But there is one huge difference between Mordecai's story and yours. As Christians, we learned last week from the talk that the better Esther has already come and he has already overcome the Haman of our time. Remember that? We might be tempted into reading into the story of Esther as just simply a moral story of poetic justice. A motivational story to trust in the claim that good things will happen to good people. A kind of Christian karma, if you will. But beneath the story is something much greater. Something that goes beyond sentiment and karma. Because of Jesus... Because of the better Esther, we have to recognize and believe that God's people have power now. Brothers and sisters, we are not powerless to do anything about the world that we live in. We have power that goes beyond the earthly and borrowed authority that Mordecai had. God has given us His own Holy Spirit to us. His own Holy Spirit. And that kind of power can overcome any power in the world. 
Yes, we have to contend with the brutal fact and reality that we are still sinners. But don't let the failures of your flesh blind you to the power that is available to you. You have the power to beat your sin. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. You have the power to endure opposition. You're not powerless to go with the flow and just do whatever your sinful temptations lead you to, uh, lead you to do. Jesus told his disciples that I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Later on, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. How do we apply this point? It's to recognize first and foremost that we are not helpless. We're not powerless as Mordecai and Esther was. Even though we might relate to his unfair treatment from time to time, we don't have to wonder, like Esther and Mordecai did, is God going to get us through this predicament? Because as believers, as Jesus, God has already given us power to the powerless through His Son. The great reversal of power, yes, in a sense, is coming. It's in the future. But in a very real sense, it's here right now for us. It's available to you. The power to overcome is here right now. Let's move on to the second point. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the third day, on the very day, uh, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Again, we've got to remember back. Remember back to chapter 3. Remember when Haman kind of tricked the king into issuing a decree to annihilate Mordecai's people? The great reversal that is implied in the previous point is actually explicitly stated here. We read the phrase, the reverse occurred. Um, it's, It's a Hebrew saying, which in today's terms would be the same as saying, the tables have now turned. It's kind of like the same thing. The once defenseless and powerless and therefore condemned people are victorious in the end. Now let me address something. If this was, well, just a story that we read about, it's a good story. It's a happy ending. The good guys were once going to lose, and then things happen, and then now the good guys get to you know, kill the bad guys. It's a classic good triumphing over evil story. But we have to recognize, and I'm sure you do, that Esther is a good story, but it isn't just a story. It's in the Bible. It's Holy Scripture. And for that, it's meant to teach us something. It's meant to show us how to live. Now, let me address the elephant in the room. If we fit the Esther story into our context, who are God's people? That's an easy one. It's, it's you and I, Christians, followers of Jesus. 
then what does this passage teach us to do to our enemies? Is it verse 5, to kill and destroy and do as we please to those who hate us? To our regret and to our shame as Christians, passages like these have been used in the past to commit acts of violence against those who opposed Christians. If you're a student of history, you would know this. Ever heard of the Crusades? Ever heard of the the Inquisition? The Jewish pogroms in Russia? The forcible conversions of indigenous people in the New World during the colonial era? I can go on. To this, let me just say this. When it comes to earthly opposition, especially in the context of earthly persecution, we find in the New Testament Jesus speaking into this. Jesus says, to love your enemy. Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, and in chapter 12 we read, Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Does our passage today teach us to kill and destroy our enemies? No. And may no Christian ever interpret it like that ever again. Christians do not kill our enemies. Christians shouldn't be adversarial with our enemies. Brothers and sisters, we don't fight fire with fire. That is not how the Lord Jesus taught us. Yes, we do push back where we can. We stand for truth where we can and use the social and political tools available to us to be a force for common good in the world that we live in. But we do not antagonize the other side, even when they might antagonize us. Very important. We do not antagonize the other side, even when they might antagonize us. There is no holy war anymore for Christians against unbelievers. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. So you might be thinking, what is then the lesson for us? Is there a lesson for us? Well, of course there is. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but what? We read in Ephesians, against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The world we live in does not walk with God because those who are in the world are walking in darkness. And as we walk with God in a world that does not, we need to first and foremost know our real enemy, brothers and sisters. We are in this sense in a holy war. Not against other people. Not against other nations. Not against other religions. Not against other groups of flesh and blood that might oppose us here and in the future but against the darkness that holds this world down. 
And like the people of God in Esther, we have to remember that we were once condemned to die. As we revisited last week and were reminded of this good news of the gospel, put it this way, the decree of God was issued just like the decree of Ahasuerus, but it's a better decree. Like the decree of Ahasuerus, we have the victory. God has decreed victory for His people. But unlike the people of God in the story of Esther, we conquer our enemies with this decree. And this decree is not one of annihilation, but redemption. It's a declaration not of retaliation, but reconciliation. This is our holy war, brothers and sisters. We fight against the darkness with what weapon? It's the good news. We fight against the darkness with the weapon of the gospel. This is our holy war. And God, remember, has also given another decree. Through His Son, He has decreed and declared all those who trust in Jesus to be righteous, to be guiltless, to be spotless. Just like the people of God we read in the story of Esther, we are no longer condemned, but we are honored. And in that position, like the people of God, we can fight back against the darkness, against everything that once condemned us to a life of darkness. The Hamans in our own lives. Sin, temptation, Satan, the things, the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Like the people of God, I implore you to fight against it to kill it, to destroy it. Because God's ultimate decree has gone out. He has given us the victory. So let's get it. Verse 26 to 28. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep, the, uh, keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim shall never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. We come to the third and final point of today's talk, and here we find the third and final great reversal. Again, we need to remember how the book of Esther began. In chapter 1, can anyone remember how it began? What scene was set in chapter 1? It was a banquet. Remember? Banquet. It was a banquet for the king. It's verses 1 to 8, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. There's a celebration going on. And this celebration ultimately leads to a chain of events that happen that end up with God's people on the chopping block. And because of that, we read in, I think, chapter 3, that a deep sadness and despair cover the people of God. They mourn, they fast, they, they, they lament. And what do we find at the end of the book? In chapter 9, there's another banquet, a celebration fit for a king. 
but it's not for a king. It's for the people. It's for the people of God. And in the midst of that, the people of God uh, decide that in mockery to the one who caused this sadness and mourning, the Jews take the purr. Remember the purr? The, the small dice of chance that Haman rolled, kind of like to mock the Jewish people, to leave it up to chance to determine whether, when to annihilate them. They use that word to ironically mark this banquet of two days as a celebration to hold for all the people of God every single year. This holiday is called Purim. It is a national holiday for the Jewish people. Purim, as a festival, is celebrated by the Jewish community today. After, what, 2,600 years later? Every single year, the Jewish people have celebrated Purim. And perhaps it's become even more significant in the 20th century, when the Hamans of modern history like Hitler and the Nazis tried to wipe out the Jewish people. This festival and holiday that is all about celebration for mourning, it's great that the Jewish people have it, but you and I are not Jews. So what can we as Christians learn from it? In his book, God and Politics in Esther, Jewish philosopher Yoram Hazoni said this about what Purim represents. And please follow along as I read it. He says, The fact is that in Persia, Being a Jew became, for the first time in history, a matter of choice, and a choice that had to be faced by every individual. In the thousand years since Sinai, the Jews had strayed from observance of the law of Moses time and time again, but their identity as Jews had never been subject to their own volition. It was only after the dispersal throughout Babylonia and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself in immediate, constant, and personal contact with other possible identities and had to choose for himself whether Jewishness would be something he would maintain or something he would hide. And then he goes on and he talks about how Purim, therefore, serves to celebrate this intentional, voluntary re-identification as God's people. For every Jew who celebrates Purim, It is an act of re-identification. I am a Jew. I am part of this people. Every time a Jew celebrates Purim, they are choosing to identify with their ethnic, religious, and spiritual identity. They are choosing to identify with the history of their people, opposed and persecuted, but not lost. I thought to myself, man, I am sure... I can't prove this, but I am sure, surely the first generation of Christians who were, by and large, Jewish, the leaders were Jewish, the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, would have been thinking about Purim when he wrote 2 Corinthians. When he wrote to the Christian community, that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. The first generation of Christians who were by and large Jewish, 
the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, knew what it meant to identify with the people group, a religious and spiritual identity, even as they were opposed and persecuted throughout their history. And he brings that into the Christian identity in 2 Corinthians. So what can we learn? Unlike the Jewish people today, who have regularly faced opposition from the cultural majority, Christians, at the very least, in the last few centuries, at least in the West, have enjoyed somewhat of a, a privileged position in society, haven't we? I remember when I was a kid and I was looking for a job, I would add in all of the kind of voluntary work that I did in church youth group. Because I thought at the time, that's culturally, it, it, it shows that I am you know, a good citizen of society. I serve in youth group. I'm a leader. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think this, this feeling that some of us still have, that, that being a Christian is to be well regarded in society, I, I don't think that's going to last. I hope it doesn't end, but realistically, I don't think it's going to last. Because if you look at the culture we live in today, all signs point to a rising antagonism against Bible-believing Christians. Against Jesus followers who advocate and live in a, in a moral paradigm that is more and more foreign and even antagonistic to the world. This holiday, which represents celebration from morning, this holiday that calls an oppressed people group to re-identify and recommit to their people, I think is going to become more and more relevant for Christians today and into the near future. So am I saying we should uh, get our calendars and not note march down as the Purim and celebrate that next year? Why don't we as Christians celebrate Purim then? It, it's a great festival. Why don't we as Christians celebrate Purim? Well, we do. We have a better celebration year on year that Purim is meant to be all about. When mourning became our celebration, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in a narrow sense, you can, you can apply this and say, ah, Easter. And that's true. A lot of Christian commentators would attest to the fact that Easter is now our Purim. And it is, if you think about it. When sadness became joy, when mourning became celebration. So, you could apply and think, okay, I'm going to treat Esther, next time it comes, uh, Esther, uh, Easter as more than a holiday, as more than a, a weekend off. I'm going to treat it like the Jewish people today treat Purim. You could apply it like that. But I think there is a, a more immediate way that we can apply this. What do we do, brothers and sisters, on Sunday morning? Do, not, do we not celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus every Sunday morning? We should. That's the point of Sunday service. Sunday morning, when we gather like this, 
is our Purim. It's our moment to celebrate the risen Lord Jesus. Sunday service is important, but if you add this element, it is infinitely more important than how some of us treat it. Sunday service is our Purim. When we remind ourselves that we gained relief from our enemies and life was transformed from sadness to joy and from mourning into a holiday. That's Esther chapter 9 verse 22. Sunday service is our Purim. We can celebrate the Lord Jesus on a Sunday morning. We don't have to wait every year like the Jews do for Purim. We have it every week. The message of the resurrection. See, the book of Esther ends with three great reversals. And I'll end it here. Power is given to the powerless and victory is given to the condemned. And the story ultimately ends with a once mourning and despairing people celebrating and rejoicing. And although I kind of said we shouldn't treat the book of Esther as simply a poetic justice story, I think it is. I don't think it's wrong to say that it is a classic story of poetic justice. Because if you look at it, the book is a story of good triumphing over evil. It's a story of a reversal of fortunes and a, and a powerful story of redemption, in fact. The ending is as good of an ending as endings go. And we, in fact, love movies and TV shows with satisfying conclusions. A catharsis, right? We love movies that, that wrap everything together and we leave feeling like the story is complete. What if I told you that we as human beings love hearing stories like this because every single one of those stories is true? No, I'm not talking about in the sense that every single fiction and non-fiction story that we ever encounter are actually true. I mean that stories like Esther reflect a deeper truth about us. The best of stories, the best movies, the best TV shows reflect our own humanness. Themes that tackle despair and darkness and redemption and renewal, the, the possibility of hope, the strength of faith, a turn towards the good, the victory of the righteous against the wicked. These things speak to our own human desire. And the greatest, arguably, the greatest storyteller of the 20th century, J.R.R. Tolkien, he thought so too. Tolkien was a Catholic, he was a Catholic Christian, and he sincerely believed that the best stories that we encounter are stories about the gospel. Because it is our own story. He believed that the best stories are best because they reflect our own story, which is that deep spiritual longing to have our stories align with the great themes of what he called fairy tales, fiction stories. And like what J.R.R. Tolkien is saying, the ending of Esther is a great ending because it is a glimpse of our own ending. Because deep down, every single one of us, whether we're Christian or not, we long for the day when power will be restored 
to us. When victory will be won, when we celebrate over our sadness. And the claim and the invitation of God's word is that this is not just a longing, but it's a reality available to us who believe in Jesus. You know, Jim Stockdale, he said that, the, uh, that he had faith that he would prevail in the end. But we have something that Jim didn't. He had faith, yes, but faith in what? Jim's faith was just a general faith that he would prevail in the end. But, but our faith is based on something, or rather someone. The resurrection is real. And in that, we find power, victory, celebration, all of it. So confront the facts today. Sometimes we might feel powerless. Sometimes we might feel condemned. Sometimes life gets tough and we mourn. But have faith that you will prevail in the end because you will. You know why? Because Jesus has risen. And you will too. Let's pray. Why don't we first just reflect on our current predicament and circumstance. You may be in a uh, special place where you feel like you're in cloud, or on cloud nine with the Lord and you're doing well and, and, and you, know, you, you feel like you can do anything for Jesus. But let's be honest, most of us, we're not there. Uh, we're, we, we have struggles to various degrees. We might be struggling with a particular habitual sin or maybe we're struggling with just the circumstances of life. We feel like we've been dealt a bad hand, at least in this season of life, and we're wondering, God, I feel powerless in this circumstance. I feel like a condemned person. I feel like everyone's against me. The world is against me. I feel like crying. Why don't we just acknowledge that? I think it's a good thing to acknowledge that and 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 pray that out to the Lord. So I invite you to do that, and then we'll pray for one other thing. So let's, let's spend some time just thinking about that. Let's pray. for a second thing let's all stand up on our feet let's all stand and just to recap in Jesus through the resurrection we have power we have victory and we have cause for celebration let's pray that we would believe in that we kind of know it if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time you know that yeah through Jesus, I have power, I have victory, I have celebration. But I don't feel it. I don't, I don't trust in that. 
God, help me to actually believe that. Simple prayer, but let's do that. Let's ask God, God, help me to really, really experience this power, this victory, this celebration in this current circumstance that I'm in. And as you do, I'm going to get the uh, music team to lead us in a song that I think is, is really suitable to the prayer point that we're praying. So let's pray for that, and then we'll sing together.